Hey everyone, this is Jordan Van Trump, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. Just wanted to let everyone know this podcast is sponsored by the company I started right out of college called AgSwag. I'm sure like many of the other disruptors on this podcast, I started this company searching for cooler stuff and better service. One of my first tasks when I got out of college was finding some cool hats for my dad's business, as my family and their friends always struggled to source quality swag throughout the years. I started this company only making a few hats and have been fortunate enough to meet some of the top business leaders in the ag industry along the way. I've worked with some of the biggest disruptors currently in the space, such as FBN, Benson Hill, Pivot Bio, Pattern Ag, Holganics, as well as many veterans such as Cargill, Nutrien, Dairy Farmers of America, Kent Corp, CGB, Helena, and the list goes on and on. Throughout this journey of providing swag to various companies in agriculture, I've had the opportunity to learn some of the best business lessons, hacks, marketing strategies, and many other things to take my company to scale and become more successful throughout the years. My intentions of this series is to bring on guests that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years to tell their story and hopefully help you build your business in the future. Hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, we're on here today. Uh, got a new podcast series we are releasing called How I Built This Ag Business. I know we've uh, released quite a few podcasts in the past. We're going to continue to do those from time to time. But uh, we really think this one's really special and something that's going to stick. Um, first guest we're going to have on the show is uh, Johnny Hunter out of Dexter, Missouri. He is a third generation farmer and he is also the president and CEO of Castor River Farms. He uh, He's got a lot of other things going on besides the farm, but I think today we're just really going to focus on what he has going on with the farming operation and his rice mill as well. So uh, with that, welcome Johnny to the show. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Kevin, thank you. Heck yeah. Heck yeah, we appreciate it. I wanted to kind of say, I, I think Johnny, like I was just saying before we jumped on the air, I'm hoping this new series, I'm super excited about it. Jordan and I talked several times. We've seen other series in other industries, but I think ag people are the most innovative. They, you know, guys are out there making things happen and we want to recognize those people and try and learn from them. I mean, hell, I've made millions of mistakes in my career and in my life as a husband, husband and business entrepreneur here. So, I mean, I've done lots of things the wrong way and, and tried to uh, turn things around to do things the right way on, on different things. And I think we're going to have some great guests as we move forward, some uh, father-son teams, some father-daughter teams. And Johnny will tell us how he got to where he's at. And Johnny's making a lot of great things happen. And uh, we got a ton of other people we're going to get to and to kind of bring those uh, to everybody and, and hopefully to spark some ideas and give some people some ideas of their own and help them uh, kind of move their operation forward. So it's going to be a cool series. And, um, and we're pumped to uh, have our good friend Johnny Hunter kick things off for us and tell us about your uh, story, John. Awesome. Well, you just want me to kind of take it away? Yeah, we're, so I'll start. Where, where did so? How did this all get started? Are you first generation farmer? I, I just mentioned. I guess you're a third generation farmer through my research. So with the family, how did how did you guys even get started with farming? And I guess we'll start from there. Yeah. So you know, we, we trace it back to 1954. Uh, F.S. Hunter, Sr. My, my grandfather and. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, Casca River and what we do and, and why we do it, you know, the, the big thing that I like to talk about that I think a lot of farm families like to talk about is legacy. And so the, the legacy that, that was established, you know, back in the 50s with my grandfather, 
Um, you know, he had a vision of, hey, you know, there's there's thousands of acres of this kind of unimproved, flooded swamp ground, swamp land, timber land, um, you know, near New Madrid, Missouri. And, and he had a vision of, you know, let's get in there. Let, let's let's acquire this property. Let's let's drain it. Let's clear it. And, and, and let's make a run at farming. Uh, prior to that, my my family had, you know, They'd been in the rail industry, timber, you know, cattle, uh, you know, banking, general stores. So the Hunter family had kind of been all over and they, they'd been landowners as well. But this was kind of where we look at marking the beginning of our production ag uh, career. And so that's just what FS did. And he started clearing sections of ground, which laid the framework for where we're at today. But you know, the legacy from for, for Papa was, you know, let's let's take this kind of unusable, you know, land and turn it into a resource that we can generate revenue off of every year through crop production. You know, moving down to the next generation, uh, John Hunter Sr., my dad, you know, he looks at this same uh, resource and says, you know what, look, we're, we're doing good. We're farming. Everything's hunky-dory, but you know, we, we could do better. And my dad was a early adopter and investor in precision leveling land. And so they started running dirt scoops and laser leveling land and putting in irrigation and putting in the right drainage structures and designing farms to minimize soil erosion. And so, you know, dad's legacy was really taking that resource and improving it. Um, Flash forward to kind of my career, um, you know, I, I'm that weighs heavy on me as it does a lot of farm kids. You know, what's going to be my legacy to to the next generation? Am I going to, you know, sit around here and you know screw around, or am I going to put put something together? And so the, you know, one of the first things that I got put in place. Uh, once I kind of got my head out of my butt was I, I made the transition from conventional agriculture over to sustainable agriculture. I didn't know why necessarily I was doing it at the time. I believe that sustainable ag or conservation ag was gonna make this resource that, that I'd had the opportunity to farm better for my kids. Um, but, but through that, um, you know, the world was changing. This was all 2011, 2012. You know, things were starting to come online with sustainability and people were starting to talk about it. And, you know, so we, we went from kind of 2012 to 2018, you know, five or six years there that, you know, we started dabbling with uh, cover crops. We started doing no-till. We started, we, we quit flooding our rice fields. We quit, you know, burning our rice fields and we, we were just doing these things because we, we saw value in it for the land. And, you know, one, one of the defining moments in my career was I was at uh, the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri receiving an award from the Missouri Department of Ag uh, for land conservation or land stewardship, one of the two. But one of, they, they brought up all the past directors of Missouri Department of Ag and one of them got up and they all got to tell a story about their most defining moment. And one of them got up and told a story about my dad and my grandfather 
getting the Lewis Dreyfus rice mill built in New Madrid, Missouri. And it just, it, it, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I can't explain it other than, you know, a near biblical experience. And no, I was not drinking heavily. No, I was not on drugs. I was sober as a cat. And, you know, but it was just one of those um, insights, you know, an insight is a thought that you have where you're never the same person that you were before the thought. And so I had an insight and I told, I, it just hit me I'm like, we're going to build a rice mill. You know, we were doing sustainable farming. We were creating value in the products that we were growing and yet, you know, no one out, ADM didn't care, Riceland didn't care, no one, no one gave a shit that, I, I, can I cuss on this thing? And we didn't even go over that. Maybe all right. <laughs> I'll keep it to a minimum, but you know, I got a potty mouth. But anyways, no one cared about the value we were putting into our products. And so we had to figure out a way to go get that value. And so I decided we're going to build a rice mill. And we finished construction in 2018, and that was the beginning. So what, tell me this, I, I had no idea, but what's the story behind your uh, grandpa and your dad bringing the rice mill to town? So, you know, again, dad was an early adopter of precision leveling and, and irrigation, which allowed for rice production. Uh, rice production in, in the Boot Hill of Missouri, kind of in the 70s and early 80s, was kind of hit or miss. Uh, but, but dad was one that really, I think, helped get it online. And they were taking their rice. They had to take the rice down to uh, Cherry Valley, Arkansas. And, you know, no offense to my Arkansas brethren that are happen to be listening out there, but Arkansas wasn't too friendly to Missouri rice farmers bringing product in from out of state. And so they were kind of getting jerked around. And, you know, it was a two and a half hour drive um to get it down there and and you know dad and papa said look this this is ridiculous there's got to be if we're going to have rice in southeast missouri if it's going to if we're going to make a go of it with this we've got to have a market that can can buy it and so through their financing political and business connections they, they got Lewis Dreyfus to build a mill, which has subsequently been sold to Riceland over the few, last few years, maybe a decade ago, shit, I don't know when, but, um, but their, their ability to get that done and get that rice mill built in New Madrid, uh, in my opinion, changed the landscape of Southeast Missouri agriculture. Yeah. Rewinding a little bit further to your past, I ran, a, uh, ran across the Facebook video you guys did for Castor River. And uh, I didn't know it at the, I, I've known you for a while and I didn't know this, but um, I think it's a hell of a story. Um, I'd like for you to share just a little bit on the passing of your father and kind of that decision for your family to take the next step forward in farming. And it seemed like you had a big decision to make at 10 years old and whether hell we're going to start, we're going to keep farming or we have to figure out something else. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, when we talk about legacy, you know, I, I, I always talk about Papa and Dad um, first and foremost because, you know, like all farm kids, my, my dad and my grandfather were bigger than life. You know, they were 
they were they were gods. And so, but the reality of it is, you know, my dad died in 1992, um, and, and I was I was 10 years old, and and then my mom at that point had the legacy in her hands, and you know she had to make some big decisions, and she came to me um, not long after dad died and, and sat me down and said, look, you know, cause she's already had to sell some farm ground to cover, to cover a lot of the debt. When my dad died, he was farming 12,000 acres in 92, which 12,000 acres today, you know, may not sound like a whole hell of a lot, but in 1992 with two way radios before the you know, the popularization of cell phones and, you know, we were still taking messages from his office over two-way radio, you know, dad was a roller. And so mom came to me and, and, you know, she had a lot of debt to clean up because, you know, dad was about like me, he's going to live forever. And so, yeah, I, 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 I answered that question as faithfully and as honestly as I could. And I told her, yeah, I want a farm. And my, for whatever reason, my mom took the word of a 10 year old boy and she held on to that ground for 16 years until I finally failed out of college so many times. She just let me farm. <laughs> and so, um that I came back and, you know, I didn't come back completely uneducated. I spent three and a half years at Mississippi State. I left with the blood alcohol content higher than my GPA. I spent two years at Southeast Missouri State University. I don't know what I did there. Um, but I, in the middle of all that, I worked for other farmers for, for seven years. And subconsciously, I was absorbing a lot of information, consciously and subconsciously. Uh, one of the outfits I worked for owned their own popcorn plant and grew and cleaned and bagged their own popcorn. And another operation, the guy owned a share of a cotton gin. And, you know, I think subconsciously I was learning that, you know, owning a piece of that supply chain um, is important and can make you successful. And I, I just realized that just a few years ago, I was thinking back on my life while drinking. And I, I kind of made that realization that, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. But yeah, my mom has been and continues to be a big reason why I do what I do. How many stores are you in now, Johnny, with the rice? Uh, <laughs> So we just picked up we just picked up 300 Walmarts that we're going to go into in October. And I think by the end of 2022, um, at the grocery store level, we'll be in we approaching that 2,000 number. Oh. Wow. Um, and that's combined with um, a growingly significant food service platform. Um, we're in with um, we're in with Performance Food Group. We're in with U.S. Foods. Um, we're in with a host of smaller food service organizations. 
Um, we're being courted right now by another food service company uh, to handle a large portion of their private label rice needs. Um, and then we are also developing and I've got 300 acres in the ground right now. I've sold 60,000 bushels uh, to one of the largest food companies in the world um, for this year, for 22. And all because they want sustainable rice in their supply chain. So I don't get to, it's not about making every bushel go into my own bag anymore, which is kind of how it all started. We've grown beyond that to, you know, we've transcended family farm with a sustainability component. And we're about to emerge as a sustainability company with a family farm component, which I think is a hell of a big leap to make in four years. So what, yeah. What, Good. I wanted to ask that real quick. No, I was going to ask because I remember when Jay and I talked a while back. It's important what you said there. I mean, you're going from a family farm to a sustainability company. And we've seen the amount of money that Wall Street and other people want to put towards a sustainability company. Uh, and whether it's if you do ever exit or if you do ever sell it off or if you do... I have to suspect there's going to be a higher valuation and uh, looked at from a little different perspective. So maybe talk to, I think maybe Jordan, tell some of the listeners, some of our producers and farmers, why you kind of made that pivot, Johnny, or why you rebranding Castor River Farms. It seems to me like you were going through a rebranding a while back and you wanted to make that move, just like I've heard some other guys doing as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, I think to be successful in business, and not that I know a damn thing about it, but it's not about making a pivot. It's about constantly making pivots. And as we move through space and time, the, the vision continues to grow and get bigger. Um, but, you know, I, I think... <clears throat> I, I think that opportunity is in the, the opportunity that's ahead of you in business is in direct correlation to the amount of value you can bring to the world. And so when I'm growing commodity rice and it's getting commingled with everybody else's and it's going into God knows where. I'm, I'm bringing the same amount of value as every other Tom, Dick, and Harry, and so I'm going to get paid like that. But what we've discovered at Castor River is knowing how we, knowing what we know how to do and how we do it and backing that up with the data and with all the partnerships that I've built over the last, you know, five, six years, some have come with me through the transition. Some have came on recently but we can bring a hell of a lot of value uh, to the world. But, you know, a family farm is going to be able to bring this much value because that's all we can produce. A sustainability company can bring this much value because a sustainability company can partner 
with whoever they need to partner to to create the supply to service the demand. Makes sense. So, no, I agree. Jordan, what'd you have? I, I was wanting to know um, what did the what did the exactly the farm look like after Southeast Missouri when you came back to the farm? What what were the practices? you guys had in place what did the farm look like and then i guess like kind of how when did the light bulb go off like i i think i need to get into sustainability this is this is what i mean you know 2006 look we we did it just like everybody else you know we were disking down beds field cultivating land planing getting things ready for rice, planting the rice, building the rice levees, putting in the gates, flooding the fields, tearing down the levees, cutting the rice, burning the fields, disc and fill cultivating, all that old tillage. And, you know, the, the farm looked like every other farm on the planet that does what we do. Um, and, and I, of course, no one's ever going to take care of your land like you're going to take care of your land. So, you know, the, the fertility was out of whack. Um, the, the ditches weren't in the best of shape. Um, the low ends needed to be corrected. The drainage had to be fixed. There was crap around all the way. I mean, it just wasn't bad, but just kind of what you would expect when, you know, you're renting third party and then they're renting below you. You know, it's that multi-tier rental structure where you're leasing and then he's subleasing. And so it just, it is what it is. So, I mean, there's, there was a lot of work to get it back in shape and it's never ending work. I mean, we, we still work on the farm on a yearly basis. I, I've got uh, my dad's old farm manager, uh, Horace, who's now 71, works for me. And all he does is sit on a dirt scooper and excavator making farm improvements. Um, the transition to, you know, sustainability really came on the heels of 2012 crop year, which was an abysmal failure for me. Um, you know, I've been farming conventionally. Other guys in 12 had the best crop ever. I had the worst one ever. Um, Hated it at the time, but I'm really glad I did looking back. But, you know, the, the way I'd been taught to farm, the practices I had in place, you know, the heavy amounts of tillage, lots of fertilizer, lots of inputs, lots of management, just lots and lots and lots, more fungicide, more insecticide, you know, more micronutrients. You know, we were just kind of caught in this, hamster wheel of ag retail and nothing against ag retail. We, we need our ag retail partners, but you know, I, I, I just kind of gotten in the, in the thick of it and we were up until 12, we've been growing great crops. I mean, 250 bushel corn, 70 bushel beans, um, you know, good rice, 200 bushel rice or whatever, 185 bushel rice. So we weren't making bad crops. We just weren't making a damn dime. And then the minute it all turned around and went the other way, and then we didn't make good crops, I think I lost $650,000 that year. So that'll make you scratch your head when you 
a six-figure loss is one thing, but I was on the other side working towards a million, you know? And so that was tough to bounce back from. And so but what, what it made me realize and what I had to do was, was a lot of research and a lot of figuring out, okay, what, what's wrong with my system? Why did my system fail me? Well, you know, it was more of the system didn't fail me. I, I had failed my soil and I had failed to pay attention to what I was doing to it. And, you know, the, the, the farming system that I'd created was built on a house of cards. And all it took was for one thing to fall over and then it all came tumbling down. And so that sent me back to the drawing board and, you know, I got rid of a bunch of tillage tools and I got rid of a bunch of bull crap and I cut out all these passes and I started farming leaner and meaner. And I started farming, you know, with mother nature rather than against it. And I know how granola and cheesy that sounds. I don't give a shit. I know it's cheesy. It's the truth. And so, but you know, through all that, I found a mentor uh, that, that, that coached me through my soil health journey that I'm still on today, but uh, there's a guy named Ray Archuleta. Uh, I, I spent about a week watching his videos and, and listening to his talks and watching him do water infiltration tests. And I sent him a, an email one night at midnight on a Saturday, and the dude called me up on a Sunday morning at about 9 a.m., and we talked for two hours about soil health. And ultimately he became my mentor um, in the sustainability space. In the, uh, Johnny, in the trading world, we call it a moron trade. It's like when the markets are going against you and you just keep putting more on and more on. And more <laughs> on. Sounds like with the, uh, the input story, right? When the, Shit's going against you, make my money. You just kept putting more inputs on, more inputs on, wondering what the hell's going on. So yeah, I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of that uh, more on trading. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. I mean, we all do it. I'm sure. So I think the key, like you said, there, you got to figure out the process and what the process is to profitability. And I think for everybody, it's different. I mean, like I said, I think for some people, conventional. You know, the farming is if they can hone it in and figure it out, you know, that there's a path to success there as well. So I'm well, I mean, you, you said this. I, I told this story the other day, but I was at your conference for the first time, maybe about a year after I got Castro River launched. And, you know, I, I think you stood up and said and pretty much told everybody in the room, this was, you know before we all saw the writing on the wall, but you told us, you said, look, in production agriculture, you're a family farm, you've got two choices. You can either be the low cost producer or you're going to, have to create value. And, you know, that really reaffirmed to me hearing that, you know, three or four or five years ago, however long it was, that I'm not the low cost producer. I don't want to be the low cost producer. I don't live a low cost lifestyle. I don't buy low cost clothes. I don't have low cost equipment. I don't have a low cost mentality. It's a material world and I'm a material girl. That's my mentality. And so if I'm gonna live like that, if I want, if I want that life, I better create value. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. People buy value. I mean, they pay for value, not uh, price. But at the same time, like we said, I think there are a lot of great producers out there who can win the battle as low cost producer. Oh, yeah. And I think they, yeah, and they can make fortunes doing it. I mean, it's just, sure, it is what it is. Yeah, it's just like Walmart. I mean, low cost provider and made fortunes doing it. Like our, you know, all the people that own all their own equipment, own, you know, or priced average into land at a super uh, inexpensive price or three or four generations deep. I mean, you can win that space, but. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just like yeah. I, I I couldn't do it, you know, because when I came back, I had a great land base underneath me, but I had to generate revenue back into into that and, and make sure that we were covering that land base. And then I had, you know, I had to start from nothing. I had no tractors, no combines, no sprayers, no help, no, you know, no grain bins. No, I mean, we started from, I had to start back from zero. Um, so, you know, if, if I would have tried to do that 10 years later, like, I don't know how a guy would do it today. I mean, yeah, we, we get that a lot. I, I listen to it a lot. I mean, father son's kind of battling because the dad's in the land and the equipment has his equipment paid and the land's super cheap and the son's you know he started out his first piece of land he'd had to buy 12,000 or 13,000 15,000 an acre for and plus then he had to buy the equipment so I mean yeah they have to have two totally different strategies and right. approaches to business and it gets pretty crazy because a lot of times the dad's telling the son he's an idiot for doing what he's doing and they you know and and those people just can't see you know i'm sure there's a lot of folks down in your neck of the woods who can't see your business model or plan you know but they're in a different situation they're playing a different hand of cards and that's it i think that's it. and that that you know everybody's got to play their hand so kenny rogers said it best every hand's a winner every hand's a loser <laughs> and the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. I hear you there. What, hey, what type of pressure, you know, and we hear this from a lot of people. I mean, what, let's be realistic. What type of pressure is it on multi-generational farmers to not run the, not, you know, run the wheels off the wagon and wreck the whole son of a bitch, and wreck the whole cart. And, you know, you feel pressure for that, don't you? The, oh, you know, yeah. Um, your dad, your grandpa, and even though they're not here, you still feel the pressure of, sure, you know, trying to, you know, the, the Hunter family, you know, we're, we're wired in such a way, though, that, you know, it, it's the, 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 the bitterness of failure pales in comparison to the bitterness of doing nothing at all. And so we're, we're just wired to go and we're wired to try and we're wired to innovate and or I feel like we are, because I mean, I wake up, I mean, a lot of who I am, I mean, you know, I, I've had to develop Johnny Hunter on, on my own. You know, I didn't have a dad, you know, or a grandpa in the background shaping me as a farmer and shaping me as a businessman. I've had to shape myself. I've had to go out and find those mentors I've had to work for other farmers and pay attention to how they did and how they lived and what, what made them successful. But yeah, there's an enormous amount of pressure. You know, I owned a cover crop business um, for about three or four years where I was designing cover crop mixes and consulting with farmers. And I can't tell you 
how many 21 to 30 year old farmers I would work with who would come to me and say, Hey, I've got a plan and I want to try to try to, you know, get some soil health initiatives going on. And I don't like the compaction I'm seeing and man, it's just kind of going the other way and we're not making more yield. And I think soil health could, could really boost. And we would, I would work with them and we'd get this big plan together and it might only be on 80 acres out of 8,000. And they would call me with the same story almost every time. Ah, uh, man, I, I'm sorry, Johnny. We're, I, I got to cancel that order. I, I ran it past my, my 85 year old grandpa and he shot it down. Or I ran it past my 60 year old dad and he shot it down. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it, it is what it is, but it, you know, you say it all the time, Kevin, you know, uh, young bulls and old bears. And I agree. I agree. These, uh, these guys, I mean, you know, the, the grandpa generation, they, they've done this through a world where growing good crops and buying your neighbor's farm and being smart could create generational wealth. And then our, my dad's age, they, they caught the tail end of that. I'm 39 years old. You know, the last farm that just sold next to me is $13,000 an acre. And I think if you take five freaking seconds and pay attention to the people who are buying a lot of these high dollar farms, they didn't make their money driving a tractor in a combine. It's institutional capital. It's, it's investment from someone in the tech space. It's, you know, ag land is quietly yet quickly becoming one of the most attractive asset classes that you can park money in. And if, so me mentally, I'm seeing that. And I'm like, I've, I've got I've to find another way. I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, Either you're going to go rent, rent, rent a bunch of ground, but I'm probably not going to own, you know, I'm probably not going to own 10,000 acres doing what I'm doing. So I better figure out how to make cash. Yeah. Nope. You're right. Now we're seeing the same thing on our end, on, on our real estate holding side, seeing more and more, you know, people asking questions from the institutional side and putting more institutional money to work and, even a lot more of the bigger ag companies themselves looking to purchase land to change the logistical structure, change things like that. They see a lot more value uh, in owning land outright uh, from an internal standpoint. So no, I, I'm with you. I think that's going to be a tricky game moving forward. So yeah, people are definitely going to have to, uh, to figure out some alternatives and, and ways to make things work. So yeah, for sure. So uh, what what I wanted to touch on this too. What did, what did your journey look like uh, getting? You said you're going to be in over two thousand stores. What does that all look like? I mean, I don't. I mean, we've talked about farming a lot, and for the listeners on here, I don't want them thinking like, "Well, goddamn, if Johnny Hunter can do it, then anybody can do it." I, I think it's important to talk about how how because I know you personally. We talk. How, how many people have you been in front of? How many meetings have you gone to? Trade shows like. What, what does that look like? And if someone wants to take the next steps into putting their product in a grocery store or going straight to the consumer, what, what, what does that journey look like for you? How'd you even get started? Hey, Johnny, Johnny, is it true? You were in, uh, you've been in some grocery stores cooking some rice before? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, oh, I, I, you know, the, the journey um, to, to do this thing, it, it, it has required and continues to require a level of sacrifice um, that would probably make most people sick. Um, one of the best quotes I've heard this year was a guy said, there's no such thing as work-life balance. There's work-life choices and each one has consequences. And nothing could be truer than that statement. I launched this brand, this idea out of the back of a 2013 GMC Yukon. And I did this by driving from store to store in Kansas City, Missouri, when we found out that high V grocery store uh, managers had the authority to put new product on the shelf. And from there, I've grown to where I'm at today. We're going into our first 300 Walmarts. I just locked down 108 Whole Foods down in the Florida Southeast region. Um, I've got a call on Tuesday with uh, one of the largest grocery stores in the world. Um, I've got another review coming up uh, in October with one, the, the largest privately owned grocery store company in the United States. If somebody wants to try to do what I have done, I would almost tell them don't. <laughs> um, but I, I say that almost tongue in cheek. What, what you got to understand is, you know, for, for all the, for all the bullshit we put up with over in the commodity world, if that's a, if that's a dump truck load of bullshit, you got to put up with in the commodity world, you've got a container load of bullshit you got to put up with in the food supply chain. And I say, I don't mean bullshit. Like I'm talking, you know, here, let me give you an example. Here's a shameless plug. See, yeah. see this. That's non-GMO project verified. That little butterfly cost me $5,000. American vegan, $2,500. Gluten-free, $2,500. Circle you, my kosher friends out there, about $3,500. I've got more money in these four little stickers than some people do in their car. And it, it, it's just amazing to me the amount of, 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 of work it takes for a family-owned company like ours to go play in that space. Our facility is food safety certified. Our farm is being certified sustainable by Global Gap. Um, we've got workman's comp insurance. Um, I'll just put it to you like this. 
you just look at what I've spent from 2018 to today on overhead, people, branding, marketing, rice mills, logos, packaging, design, consulting. Three. Not 300,000. I've got about oh, 3 million. I've got about 3 million in this. And I don't tell you that to impress you. I got nothing to do to impress you or anybody on this podcast. I'll probably never meet any of them. Except at FarmCon 2023. Get your tickets now, early bird special. <laughs> You're nuts. But, oh, yeah, I agree. But it, like, I tell you that, I tell you that because when I say it takes a lot, it takes a lot. But I think that's where, you know, as Castor River continues to grow and we continue to emerge as, as who we're going to become, one of our goals is to be able to come back and reach back out to these growers who want to make these sustainable transitions and want to try to get value and premium for their product. And we want to partner with those farmers and we want to save them from the nightmare that we've gone through and just offer them an opportunity to sell their products for more money. Um, if they're able to fit inside the Castor river, um, box, so to speak, but it's, you know, if you want to get products off your farm, get ready to hustle, get ready to work and get ready to reinvent yourself on a minimum semi-annual basis. Get ready to reinvent yourself because the skills you've developed, the, the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you behave, where you, what you do, who you hate, all that's getting ready to change. If you're going to make this transition out of family farm into the big world of food. Yeah, Johnny, it's like with uh, when I was telling Jordan how to get ag swag off the ground and, you know, to get out there. And I said, hey, go to these food services shows and uh, go to some of these other restaurant shows. Jordan's like, he goes like, shit, Johnny Hunter's out there. Johnny Hunter's at this show. Hey, Johnny Hunter's over at this show. And I was like, the hell is johnny hunter is like no you're at every restaurant show food shots and jordan to pet food shows and you know places we can go to sell our swag but you're doing the same thing with castor river yeah so you know starting in 2019 uh expo west expo east fancy food um the distributor shows kahi unfi uh checks um i'm on the road out of a 365-day calendar, I'm probably on the road well over 100. Yeah. Um, in business development, talking about the brand, taking meetings, developing strategic partnerships, um, I'm, I'm on the road. And, you know, you, you got to have a good team back home that can handle your business while you're out on the road doing, doing your thing. You got to have people on the farm that can handle the farm. You know, if, if you're a family farm and you're like, you know what, I want to create some value. I want to go to the, the, you better give up your combine driving seat that you love 
you better give up the seat in the sprayer. You better give up the seat in your brand new Peterbilt. You're going to give up your seat because your ass is going to be out there on the road selling. And if you can't sell, then you're probably going to have to hand that over to someone who's going to take enough margin off your deal that you, you've defeated the purpose anyways. And that's where that whole work-life balance comes in. I mean, I talked to Jordan. You know, he's young, you know, going to be getting married here before too long. And, you know, he's already hearing some of the – I don't want to say it, but he, he, you know, he has the discussions with his, his girlfriend all the time. You know, she – She's like, my gosh, do you guys just work all the time? Is that all you guys do is just work? And, you know, and Jordan's like, well, yeah, that's, that's what our family does. And, and Jordan's now working way more. You know, he's, I hate travel. I got to where I just got tired of traveling. I burn out on it. I got older. And, uh, you know, a lot of my older friends are the same way. But, yeah, I'm telling you, it's a, uh, like you're saying, if you're going to pivot at the farm, you're going to start to go down those paths and, you've got to be open for constant change. You got to be up for it. Number one, and you got to be willing to hustle. And yeah, it's, uh, I'm with you. The airports suck traveling with all the crazy, you know, stuff you got to have to do the boost and dealing with the trade shows and all the people and the bitching people walking through. It's just tough. It is a tough mental, it's, it's mentally. It's tough. It, it really is. And I can't tell you how many food show, I mean, for me to go to a food show is usually a, depending on how many team members go with me, usually at least one, sometimes two, um, those are going to be 15 to 17,000 a pop. Yeah. And I mean, so, so you're there and that means that I've got to sell $15,000 worth of rice just to cover my expenses for the show and another probably thousand to cover my bar tab. Yeah, no, I hear you. Tell tell the people what that sales cycle kind of looks like from those shows too. Like it's not just closing people uh, out, closing so, people spot, is it? So I'm going into Walmart um, October of 2022. I landed that deal June of 21. When did you meet him? Oh wow. When did I meet him? Yeah, June of 21. Okay. Uh, the, well, uh, that that chain of events started probably in March of 21, where I, I engaged a, a firm down in Arkansas that specializes um, brokerage into Walmart only. That's their sole focus. And so I engaged that firm. We we got a temporary contract. Um, I got to do a a pitch to a Walmart buyer in June of 21. I got a deal on the spot and October of 22 is when we're going to actually hit the shelf. And, you know, then grocery stores, you know, are much the same way. Walmart's kind of its own beast, but from the time, so you got to think about the global nature of it. From the time I develop the relationship to I get the meeting is about usually three, sometimes six months before I even get the meeting. And then from the meeting to the next meeting, you know, it's probably another two months. And then if I land the deal, um, you're, you're looking at, depending on the review cycle uh, or the reset, you might, be, you might be a year out on getting product on the shelf. And then depending on how you structure that deal, 
Um, a lot of your grocery store chains are going to ask for slotting, uh, which means I, depending on how many stores I'm going into, I'm going to write them a check to allow them to put my product on the shelf, or I'm going to participate in a free fill program, um, which means I give them free product uh, to stock their shelves with. And so, you know, I don't start making money until the reorder happens. And then I've got to sell enough product to cover my initial free fill. And then I got to cover the shipping and then I can start making margin on the stuff I'm moving forward with, which is tough in center store grocery because the velocity is not huge. Um, but we're there and we're making it and we're, we're doing it. And, you know, people, the good thing about my product is that once people try it and they taste the difference, generally they're going to come back and get it. Um, you know, we are, you know, we're not the most expensive rice on the shelf. So the most expensive is going to be that $8.99 organic. Then you got, you come down, Cash to River is going to be that $6.99 sustainable. And then you drop down to $4.99 private label and then $2.99 value. Uh, or I call it low value. They call it value, but I mean, you don't know what the hell's, well, we don't have to get into that. But anyways, um, but you know, what you'll see too, you know, as the economy goes up and down, you know, we can, we can pick people up that are coming down out of that really expensive organic and the economy comes back up. People want to upgrade and get a better product and we'll pick them back up out of that private label. So we like where we're positioned price-wise, um, but you know, it's like if you think you're going to go do grocery retail only and make a fortune, you know, you better have, you know, a wide variety of, you know, you need 10, 15 SKUs. You need to take up a whole shelf of the whole category. Uh, you know, I've got two products, long grain brown, long grain white. Um, so, but two, if you go in with 10 products, that's 10 SKUs, which means you got 10 times the slotting costs that I do. So you've got to pack a lunch and <laughs> you better know what you're doing because I cannot tell you how easy it is to get your head chopped off doing this. So uh, if you had to do it all again, what would you do different? Even, even if you're still doing it now and you still need to make that change, what, what would you do different? If I had it all to do over again, like what year do you want to go back to? <laughs> Just say cash. You started Cash the River, twenty eighteen. Yeah. Um. What would I do different, man? I don't know. That's. I don't spend much time looking in the rear view because I don't I ain't going that way. Um. I. I guess what I failed to do in the very very beginning, um, I, I'm the type that. You know, I want to just build the thing and I want to rush into it with a with a weed eater and start chopping down the weeds and and blasting my way through it. I think if I would have because I thought, you know, I was super naive at how much money it was going to take to go to market with a new product. Um, I think if I would have came back and brought in a firm or two that could kind of consult with me on a go-to-market strategy uh, for my product and build it up kind of organically the right way. Um, I think that would have felt better to me. 
Um, but, man, we're just – I'm not wired that way. Um, now, we're using those people now that we've been in business for four years and we can have an intelligent conversation with them. But I was also dumb enough to think, hey, I'll build a mill and have some slick packaging, tell a great story, put – you know, put the story on the bag and the phone's going to start ringing off the hook with people wanting to buy this stuff left and right. Didn't happen. The phone didn't ring for like six months. And so, you know, you got to realize that, you know, with the food system that we've built in America, um, there, there is such a, the, the food system is not built for family farms. The food system is built for food companies and they're multi-million dollar or multi-billion dollar companies that have offices full of people who do nothing all day, but push paper and enter stuff into computers. And so, man, it's just like, I mean, you should have seen the paperwork we had to do just to get non-GMO projects certified. Rice is inherently non-GMO. There is no commercially available GMO rice on the freaking planet. Yet I have to go through the same paperwork and the same process as somebody who's selling non-GMO corn, which there's thousands of GMO corns out there. So, but if you expect, if you're, if you go into this industry and you're looking for sympathy because you've got a great story and you're a family off or you're a family farm, you know, if you want sympathy, you can get out a dictionary and look between syphilis and shit. Cause that's about what you're going to, where you're going to find it. There is no sympathy. They do not care. They, they, they're not worried about your legacy. These people have a job to do. You're either going to get inside their machine and you're going to function like you're supposed to, or you're going to get the hell out of the way and you're out. So what choice did I have other than to make the investment, hire the people, make the thing happen? Um, you know, it's just, just kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. Makes sense. So what, uh, what's next? What, what are you, what are you setting up for the next generation? What's, uh, what's the vision um, going forward? You know, my legacy is going to be twofold. Um, the, the legacy that I'm leaving my children is one is I've, um, I've developed, I've innovated and I continue to innovate what I feel is one of the best regenerative farming systems in the mid South. And I, not to be that guy, but I'm pretty damn good at what I do on the farm. Um, and so I think, I think a healthy soil that's capable of, of producing um, net revenue for your, for your children is a legacy. And, and I intend to leave this resource, this land, which I call the, my resource, I, I intend to leave this resource in much better shape than I found it. And I've already made really big strides in that. Um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm 39, I'm going to be 40 this year. And my dad died at 52, which gets me to thinking, you know, what if I've only got 12 years left? What if I've got less than that? 
And I think the biggest problem we have in family-owned businesses and family farms for sure is that everything revolves around dad. You know, the, 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 the patriarch of the family is, the, is not only the cornerstone, he's everything. And so when, when dad dies, the business dies with it. Unless there's a kid or a nephew or a sibling or a brother or somebody to come in and pick up the pieces. And I very much intend over the next, you know, five years to make sure that I'm building a company that's built on processes and systems and not built on Johnny Hunter. Because I think nothing would be a bigger shame than to me to put in I mean, all these thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that I've poured into this thing only to have me, you know, die in a bullfight somewhere down in Texas, you know, only to have me die in some dumb way. And then I've left my family right back where we started in 1992. I mean, that's, that's, that's a scenario that that's one of the few things that keeps me up at night, it, the debt, the risk, the soul crushing anxiety, the, all, none of that. I, I sleep like a damn baby through all that shit, but you talk about leaving um, my family with back at ground zero and then my son and my daughter waiting another 16 years to restart the damn thing all over again that keeps me up at night and so that's that's the big thing that i've got to get done uh look the business development it's coming uh, you know the i'm gonna grind hard enough to get this thing done i there's just i mean i'm not even worried about that anymore but it's it's, it's finding the right people and it's finding the right way to take what johnny hunter does and what cash river does and decentralize me to where this thing can run whether I'm here or not. Yeah, I think that's an important goal. Very important. So I, I have those regrets on my own business. I said, gosh, damn it. I mean, I've just built a, uh, you know, a business around my, my personality or the Van Trump report to some degree. And I have a lot of regrets at that. At the time, it, it seemed like a great thing, but hell, it was just a, uh, I created a job, you know, I'm on a hamster wheel every day. It's just kind of a job. And it's, uh, it's tough, like you said, to think of all the hours and everything we put in. And, you know, so I always was told, you know, there's a couple of ways you can do things. You can have income or revenue coming into your business, which would be Castor River Farms, Johnny Hunter's business. And then you can deploy that revenue and capital back into the business, pour it back into the business. Or you can take and deploy the capital into other people's businesses, into other, other things. And that's the path that I took. So I generate revenue, generate income, and then we pour it into other farm partnerships, other ag businesses, other ag investments, ag tech startups. And hopefully those businesses then, uh, you know, pay dividends through the years for the kids. We buy properties, buy uh, buildings uh, and different things. So I think there's two ways that people can go about it. But you're absolutely right. If you're taking your revenue and your and your proceeds and your money and pouring it back into your business, you better have a succession plan or processes in place 
that you can step out of and it's just a cog and uh and you can stick a new cog in there and that uh, that machine keeps printing money right. and i you know that that's how you have to look at it or you have to take those revenues and put them into something that's going to spin off uh money in the future so yeah i think that's good stuff johnny for sure i think everyone faces those challenges jordan it's about all the questions i had and I think we're about an hour into this sucker, so. Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. I'm, I'd love to hear, you know, I'd love to hear it. And I think everyone needs the wake-up calls like uh, Johnny's saying out there. You know, I think we have to have that as we move forward. So, I, you know, it's not going to be an easy road. Anywhere you pick, I think it's never easy. It all, grass always looks greener on the other side. So, yeah, I, I, you know, there's, there's trials and tribulations along every journey. Brace yourself. I like the work-life balance thing, Johnny. That is so critical for all of us. I mean, all of I, I tell everyone, I don't give a shit what you do. If you're in the top one, two percent of your field, I don't care if you're playing violin or collecting stamps or farming, there is not going to be a work-life balance. I mean, it isn't going to happen. And you have to have a great partner at home and you guys have to have a great, you got to be open and communicate and talk. And, you know, somebody's got to be, you know, you got to divide up responsibility and it's just all there is to it. I, you know, yeah, it's tough, but it is what it is. Yeah. There's no balance. There's, there's, there's only choices. You're right. That's a fallacy. That is a fallacy that we've been told. And I think a lot of our kids, a lot of these younger kids, I mean, they, you know, they, they want this supposed work-life balance. And I've heard a lot of, you know, a lot of people at the higher level are just like, man, it just doesn't exist. I mean, I don't know where, who's telling you that, but it just really is, doesn't exist much. Yeah. So. Well, I think it gets worse and worse. I mean, back in your day, dad, I mean, that's about all there was to do was work. Was there not? Oh, no, right. That's what I say. I said, my grandpa and Johnny, I'll tell you, I mean, Johnny's younger than I am, obviously, but my grandpa would just shake his head, you know, at what was happening with my generation, even and hell, I'm working my ass off, working numerous jobs. Your mom's working two, three jobs. We always were working and had jobs. I mean, that's just what we did. And uh, my grandpa would still be like it. Your generation's just as lazy as could be and blah, blah, blah. And I can't imagine what he would say now. You know, I sit there and I'm just like, holy shit. I see all these kids that don't work and a lot of kids going through college don't work. You know, it's just a weird deal. And I, we've had, I don't know. We've talked about it many, many times amongst my friends and, and family. Maybe it's the wealth that has been passed down now, generation to generation and another generation. Like you, Jordan. I mean, shit, you, you, your life's nothing like my life was. And But my grandpa came over on a boat from Germany with zero, nada, 12 brothers and sisters. They had zippity doodah, nothing. And so he didn't have any wealth passed down to him. He passed a little bit of wealth down to my mom and my uncle and they passed, you know, they're passed a little bit of wealth forward and hopefully we'll pass a little bit more forward. So maybe it's that passing of generational wealth that has allowed, you know, kids to take a different approach or appearance. And I don't know. I I heard it put really well the other day and I watched the deal and it said hard times create strong men, strong men create good times. Good times create weak children. Weak children create hard times. Hard times create strong men. 
So it's that pattern. I agree. And we've talked about, it. we heard that same guy, that uh, guy in that uh, gymnasium diving that feet. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, my wife and I, my family have talked about it and you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and it's going to be weird to see how this plays out. Maybe we're nuts. I mean, old bears, Johnny, old bears, young bulls. And I hope that it all works out for the best, but gosh, dog it. It seems like. Uh, I do too. But you know, I mean, the one, one part of my business mind says, man, this sucks. I can't find people to bring a company that, that are on my level of work ethic and that will answer an email on a Sunday or, you know, don't need, you know, a month of PTO for all these little things that pop up in their life. But then the other side of my brain goes, John, Johnny, think about it. There's no one coming behind you to take your throne. There's no one that's going to do what you're, you, you will go places that these kids can't get back from. And there's no one that's going to come dethrone you once you reach your, your pinnacle because they're not, they they don't have what it takes. And, and it's really tough to generalize people. No one needs to be generalized because there's always going to be the standouts. But when you look at just a big group of, you know, a lot of them and, and farm kids, that's where you find your shining stars. That's where these farm kids are, are still trying to do something, but you know, so much of the, there's not many farm kids left, you know, yeah. there's not many left. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see it all play out, but I can't worry about that. I'm not going to think about it for five minutes. I wake up every day and I'm just like you guys, I'm out there grinding. That's it, buddy. That's it. I agree with you. It's all we can do. Moment. I always told my kids, I said, I guarantee you one thing. My grandpa would always tell me, he's like, I better not see anybody out working your ass. You, they might be smarter than you. They may be faster, you know, in, in, in sports. And he's like, if I see somebody out working, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. And so I, you know, I just always took that forward. And that's, that's what I always told the kids. I'm like, pick something you like and then shit, outwork everybody. Outwork them. Just make outwork them. Work them. That's what I say. That's all we got. We we didn't get the genetics and the skills and some of the other things. I got to just outwork people. That's all there is to it. So that's it. That's, that's it. That's what we try to do. So anyway, yeah, I appreciate being on, Johnny, for sure. Hey, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate thank the you. time. I hope I brought uh, hope I brought value to to you to your to your podcast and to your you know to your listeners. And you know, um, I'm always uh, always a fan of anything the Van Trumps have got going on and see you. Uh, CKC at uh, at FarmCon yeah. 23. Uh, hopefully, uh, we may make it down to a Cardinals game. Who knows? We'll see what happens here. We'll see you and Doug and Jr. and the crew. Yeah. Cardinals playing pretty yeah. good, aren't they? I I couldn't tell you. I haven't watched the ball game all year. He's just working. He's just selling rice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just let me know if they make it to the playoffs, and I'll be there. <laughs> right on, buddy. All right, Johnny. You have a good one. I appreciate see you guys. it. Yeah. Thanks, see you. Bye.